AT&T ThreatTrack is a roundtable discussion of the latest network security trends and news conducted by AT&T data security analysts. Complete video of this show is available at techchannel.att.com. Hello, welcome to AT&T ThreatTrack for February 17, 2015. This program provides network security highlights, discussion, and countermeasures for cyber threats. Today we're joined by a special guest, H.D. Uh, Moore, Chief Research Officer of Rapid7. H.D., welcome, and uh, tell us a little bit about yourself. Oh, sure. Thanks for having me. Um, these days I work mostly on research and open source, which is a, a great way to spend my time. Um, I work on a bunch of things related to Rapid7 Labs including our internet-wide scanning project, which is uh, Project Sonar, um, as well as working on the open source products like Metasploit. Um, so these days I'm doing a lot of uh, data munging and uh, automation and scripting and trying to find ways to you know, shake out large amounts of zero day from the internet. Oh, great. Hey, uh, I wish we could have uh, done this in person, but uh, perhaps sometime in the future. Thanks for joining us online. And also online, we have Jim Clausing. Welcome, Jim. Hey, Brian. <laughs> and uh, right here with me in the, uh, I guess, our work area studio, John Hogeboom. And Back welcome, again. John. <laughs> Back again. I'm Brian Rexroad, and uh, we'll get right down to it here. And first, we'll go to you, John. And, you know, there's been a, there have been actually a number of stories about relatively large uh, attacks. This one, I think, has a little bit of a different slant. So what can you tell us? Yeah, I mean... The more of these stories that come out, it seems like the world's going to hell in a handbasket security-wise, <laughs> right? Because the past couple of years here, it's all in the press and in the media, yeah. and every new attack is larger than the last one. Um, this most recent story that came out, uh, posted by the New York Times, and it is uh, talking about um, a group of hackers mm -hmm. that engaged in some banking malware. Unlike a lot of the other banking malware we've seen that might target individual users and try to steal their bank credentials from their local PC when they log in and then try to transfer funds from their bank account one at a time, this is a bit more targeted, a bit more focused on the banks themselves. So mm -hmm. this particular group, which is being dubbed the Carbidac uh, Cyber Gang, named for the malware family that, mm -hmm. that they use here, uh, they compromised a bunch of banks themselves they did uh, some, you know, spear phishing or mm -hmm. phishing. I'm not quite sure how speared it was, but phishing attempts against um, people that work inside these banking institutions, mm -hmm. compromised their machines. And then they were really smart. And what they did is they kind of sat there and watched using, you know, we talked about this before with APT type attacks with remote access toolkits that kind of mm -hmm. let you see what the user's doing, keystroke log. Um, a lot of other capabilities some of these have. This particular one was actually able to allow them to see how the infected user worked through the banking system. Right. So they sat there for a while, they watched to understand how transactions occurred and how normal user, you know, how a normal person bank employee would transfer funds and do these types of activities. Mm -hmm. Then once they got a good understanding of how that works, they went and committed those activities with, with their remote access toolkit mm -hmm. uh, as those users transferring funds. And they did a lot of other interesting tricks where they would go into an account, maybe the account had $1,000, they'd artificially make it seem like it had 10000 they would change mm -hmm. it, mm -hmm. and then they would transfer 9000 back out to one of their you know, shell accounts that they have that they could pick up the money at. But then the user itself would never really see anything bad happen because they still had $1,000 in their right, account. Right. Um, and it took the banks a long time to figure out what the heck is going on here. So this was a pretty um, 
Uh, wide scale, in fact, they compromise several banking institutions. I'm not quite sure if they've named any ones that are uh, that have been compromised. Not conclusively. Maybe that, not that conclusively, seen. but um, uh, the estimates are at least 300 million. Some people are saying a billion, um, but I don't know that they actually know for sure exactly right. how much has uh, been stolen. Assuming most of these are probably FDIC insured, but still, that doesn't really help. You know uh, our economy in general, mm -hmm. yeah. but uh, no, because it's, the money it's has still to go. Stolen money, yeah, right? still stolen money, and uh, there were some other interesting uh, artifacts in here where they said that they were actually able to direct ATMs to dis mm -hmm. dispense money to people, so they could get a, you know one of their human assets, their mm -hmm. money mule, and on site by an ATM and tell it to just start dispensing money to that person. Uh, I'm not quite sure how that works. Um, or, or why that would actually be a function that a banking employee could do, yeah. <laughs> um, you know, from their desktop or whatever. But in any event, they said that that was a capability that was done here. Yeah. So, um, you know, unlike a lot of these banking operations um, that are kind of small scale, you know, uh, Bonnie and Clyde type operations, this mm -hmm. was more of a, you know, coordinated large scale attack on the banking yeah. institutions themselves. The thing that I found most intriguing is that people factor. That is, they took the time to kind of spy, in a sense, mm -hmm. and, and get an a, a understanding of what operations were taking place and how to look like normal transactions. I haven't seen that too often in the past. Uh, but even on top of that, I think one of the things that, that is uh, perhaps not appreciated entirely at this stage is that this apparently has been going on for some time and you know, kind of behind the scenes and perhaps has been growing to the point where oh, finally somebody sort of noticed something was awry right. and, then, uh, and then dug into it further and then obviously uh, sort of broke loose a number of uh, other activities associated with it. So I suspect it really kind of started relatively small and they found that they were successful and said, well, you know, like, just like any business would try to do, expand the operations and, you know, finally uh, got to the point where it sort of like hopefully imploded at this point. I guess at least one article suggested that this activity is still going on. Yeah, they're saying it's possibly still going on, right. Right. Um, the other interesting thing, in my opinion, was that the majority of the victims that they identified were in Russia, mm -hmm. which a lot of times you kind of suspect, well, it's hard to say, but a lot of times cybercrime comes out of Russia, mm -hmm. right? The actor set is out of Russia. Uh, but I don't know that they always target Russian citizens so much as other parts like the U.S. and whatnot. So it's kind of interesting that most of the victims here were, um, you know, were in Russia or Russian banks. But maybe, mm -hmm. maybe that does lend some credence that the attackers are Russian because if they're going to watch and understand how these systems work, that might be to understand the flow of yeah. how to commit these transactions. That might be their native language. So, you know, you're really interacting with it like a, a person. It's a possibility. I think there are a lot of possibilities in this case in the sense that uh, there are certainly, I mean, it's not always about countries, but there certainly are a number of countries in the region that don't necessarily get along as, mm -hmm. as, as well with Russia. So they might tend to go after countries that, that, um, that, that they don't like so much. You know, it's just... Uh, I don't think there's any evidence that suggested no. anything like that. The countries may be completely irrelevant, and they may be just going where there's money available. Right. This could be organized crime right. at a, you know, a high operating level here. You said it's been going on for a while, and you know, with the, the ruble dropping the way it has recently, I suspect they may not want to 
be going after Russian banks very mm -hmm. much anymore. But um, the whole thing of the attackers watching to figure out how the transactions work, I think, yeah, yeah I think we're going to see some more of that. I, in fact, I suspect that I actually saw some of that in an investigation I did uh, some time back. But it's taking the time to figure out how the operation, you know, how the operators actually mm -hmm. work to figure out how they can, you know, steal whatever it is they want to steal, whether it's money or uh, intellectual property or whatever. Mm -hmm. it, you know, uh, perhaps even another way of looking at it, we, you know, we often refer to advanced persistent threats. And uh, I think a lot of organizations consider any sophisticated attack. You know, we've tended to associate with nation state sponsor type things. But in any case, this is a case where in, in many situations, it's persistence by virtue of, a, you know, sort of a benefit or a desired effect. This is one where they almost expect it. That is to go in and to just camp out for a while to observe means that you are expecting to be there for a while. Which, uh, you know, yeah, a lot of, a lot of the others, they go in and they grab whatever they can, and then they say, they sort of sit in the background in case they want to come back. This is a case where they went and, you know, kind of sat on it. So, it's, again, it's just a, another sort of interesting observation. Well, and that means that they're relatively confident that they're going to be undetected for a while. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yep. A lot of these transactions, even though it adds up to a large amount of money, really is not a significant impact relative to the, uh, the amount of money that's flowing through the banks. And so, um, and, and that's really, you know, in any sort of theft and activity, if you can kind of stay under the radar or, it, it, you know, it makes it more palatable for the target organization. So, uh, you, you know, one option, as you said earlier, John, Previously, sort of the fad was to go after the end users, but you have to go after an awful lot of them in order to stay under the radar, whereas in this situation, it appears that they are able to stay under the radar for a period of time. Good point. You know, a lot of these organizations, they don't change their procedures very often, or they may have their procedures defined by regulation. Um, back in the days when I was doing a lot of pen tests for community banks and credit unions, um, we basically had, uh, I think it was in 2000, 2001 timeframe, you really had, a, um, you know, your dailies were run once a day, and then your weeklies and your monthlies, and each of those provided some window of time and where you could manipulate accounts before people could figure out what they were. Um, and kind of referring to the ability to dump cash over the ATMs, uh, one of the older ATM systems I audited was running Windows XP, and it was really driven by Perl scripts on the system. So once yep. you gained access to the management network from there, you had easy access to the ATMs, and the ATMs, you just run a Perl script, and it would dump cash into the, um, what do they call it, the... Uh, not the trash door, but the the place where the um, when your card gets eaten by the ATM, where it dumps that, um, and then there's a way to basically dump that drawer. Um, so it was it was a, a kind of an indirect way to dump cash out of the machine that way at the time. So it's mm -hmm. interesting to see, like you know, 15 years later, not a whole lot has changed there. Yep, good point. Very scary that they're using Perl scripts to control ATMs on Windows XP machines. <laughs> <laughs> the vendor in question's upgraded quite a bit since then. Um, yeah. After a, a, an attack like this in the past. All right, so let's go on to our next topic here. And, you know, I guess we had covered this a little while ago, but we didn't have the privilege of having H.D. Moore kind of giving his perspective on the topic. So, H.D., we'll go ahead and let you introduce this topic. I guess you had uh, found that uh, some of the gas stations are accessible in more ways than just driving in to get gas. Yeah, this is an odd issue that um, we actually had this drop into our laps by a fellow named Jack Chadowitz 
who identified the issue, put an online test for the issue on his website, but couldn't get the vendors or you know the consumers or the, the tank operators, anyone else to actually take it seriously. So he asked us for help in terms of um, first scanning the whole internet, looking for devices that were exposed, uh, and then helping him with the uh, outreach with the vendors, with you know ICS CERT, with uh, CERT CC and so on. So we mm -hmm. spent uh, quite a bit of time both scanning the internet for you know internet port 1001, um, gathering all the information, trying to figure out who the gas station owners were, and then funneling that off to different agencies to uh, report and notify the, the, the victims but, uh, or the, the vulnerable systems. Um, one thing that was really uh, you know, bizarre about this was kind of the way the vendors reacted. Uh, I don't want to go into too many details or you know, calling it out for what I thought was irresponsible, but um, there was a lot of panic in the um, gas station owner industry. Mm -hmm. Uh, because of how the vendor responded and uh, you know tried to address the issue, a lot of folks thought their pumps were being hacked when they weren't being hacked. Um, there was some contradictory statements being sent around by different press, you know, different industry organizations, and it's kind of been you know chicken little since then. Um, in the last few weeks, we're now we're now starting to see uh, mass deface, defacements and mass uh, modifications of these things. Um, we're seeing things like you know we are legion and things like that being put into the gas station uh, uh, station header information or um, you know, tank volumes being misreported. So it didn't take long from this issue becoming public before a lot of folks both started exploiting it and then trying to find ways to fix it. Uh, and last I heard, the way the vendor is addressing it doesn't actually, it doesn't really fix the problem. Um, these things are still being managed through a you know, clear text TCP connection across the internet. Um, and the vendor's advice has been to basically put a source IP ACL in place to prevent access from anything other than their, their monitoring systems. So this is just an example of, you know, another industry that has to grow up and kind of get with the times and uh, start using real security for um, their products and, you know, their uh, customers. You know, it, and, you know, we've been struggling with this for some time. This is, it ultimately becomes a balance between, uh, I guess, having knowledge of things and trying to do something about it, but having to deal with the scope of it. That is, you know, a lot of these internet connected devices, as you, I, I think you're pointing out here, is that um, they're just not ready to be connected to the internet. And uh, it, it's, it's a matter of, you know, when you have all these different types of devices and all these uh, organizations that are using it, how do you manage being able to get people notified about it, if, you know, find them, organize the, the, the communications and actually get something done? And uh, I mean, obviously, you know, a lot of people are going to be offended. There's going to be backlash associated with it. But I just, I just have, I, I struggle with dealing with the, the scale of the different types of devices that are getting out there that don't have patch practices. You know, what do you tell these people? How, do, how are they supposed to manage this? So it, it's a really tough problem, but uh, I, you know, I guess uh, kudos to your effort to try to, to get something done. Well, we're trying to tackle this. I mean, like you said, there's so many different vendors out there that are affected. You can't take it piecemeal. It's just not gonna work time-wise. So what we've been doing is looking at, uh, you know, one, scanning the whole internet for various protocols, gathering the data, the responses, the banners, trying to identify what those products are. We started building an open source uh, fingerprint database to help us figure out what products belong to what vendors based on different you know, banners and version strings. Um, that's a project called Recog that uh, was launched uh, about a month ago. That's now the built-in fingerprint database for uh, Metasploit as well. So we're trying to kind of connect the dots between the sonar internet scale scanning, the Recog fingerprint database, and Metasploit itself to be able to use uh, Metasploit to help fingerprint these products. Kind of the way we're tackling it is anything that should be random on the internet but isn't random is obviously a problem. So we're, we're doing some things now where we're taking a list of every SSL cert, every SSH uh, public key, and saying, okay, which ones are most duplicate, most duplicate the most often? University of Michigan did a great job of, of some of this research in the past, um, but they didn't have time to get on and actually identify all those individual impacted devices. So that's been my pet project for the last few weeks has been 
you know, identifying, uh, you know, grabbing all the certs, grabbing all the public keys, uh, doing a unique sort based on key, finding the ones with the most overlaps, and then trying to figure out what these things are, adding fingerprints to them, and then handing it off to cert and so on to actually notify the vendors and get them fixed. Uh, but it's, it's definitely a long path. Wow. Sounds like you got a, a lot of stuff going on. <laughs> <laughs> it's fun stuff, though. The nice thing is, like, we don't just get one zero day. We get, like, 60 zero days with everybody right. we look into. So um, it's it's definitely a lot more rewarding than, you know, spending three days on a dinky little router or something like that. Uh, we tend to find bugs that, you know, impact millions of devices or we don't bother looking at them. Well, very good. The uh, I guess, uh, Jim, any comments from you? I think it's, it's pretty cool that you're going to tie this together you know, yep. feed that into Metasploit because I've been a big fan of Metasploit for a long time. So I, you know, that was one of the reasons I was excited you were coming on. I've <laughs> you know, been a Metasploit fanboy for a, for a long time, although I don't do a whole lot of pen testing these days. So, right. so but the tying that all together is going to be pretty cool when it actually gets released. I'm looking forward to it. Oh, thanks. Yeah, it's, it's coming together well. We have um, early support for things like SNMP, but we have a lot more work to do on um, uh, the SL and, and SH key blacklist and identifying those devices. We've also done some recent research on looking for trends across different services and protocols. Uh, so one example is if you look at all the, we, we scan port map across internet through EDP once a week. So we get a list of all the program IDs that are registered with the SunRPC port mapper. And then we graph all those out across the six months, seven months or so now. And what we're seeing is there's a new device that was introduced in December, which is now spiking through the roof in terms of the number of devices that are um, showing this particular service being open. Um, and we've been spending some time trying to identify what that is. And it appears to be a 4K set-top box being rolled out by a particular ISP in the U.S. Mm. Um, so it's neat kind of being able to use the trend lines and the outliers as ways to identify whether there's you know new risky devices being put on the Internet without firewalls in front of them. Very cool. Yep. Very cool. So, John, let's go back to you. And um, I mean, there, there was one sort of sophisticated attack that sounded like a really people activity. <laughs> We've, this one, this one just kind of blows my mind. Right. Well, <laughs> so this is this kind of just emerged yesterday, I yeah. think, uh, early this week. Um, the uh, I'm trying to think of who actually came out with this article now. I think it's Kaspersky. Kaspersky. Uh, yes, yeah, Kaspersky uh, uh, released the information about. This equation group, um, mm -hmm. an advanced persistent threat type uh, group. Interesting, though, that they have very sophisticated techniques, more sophisticated than most of the other ones we normally run across. So, mm -hmm. you know, when we look at the China nation state stuff, it's actually not that complicated what they do. It's some more, of it. Some I mean, of it. They, uh, some is, some yeah. isn't. But for the most part, it's, it's not tricky what yeah. they're doing here. But the equation group um, has a lot of uh, interesting tricks and techniques in its bag. Mm -hmm. From a targeting standpoint, uh, I also should mention that this group, they believe, has probably been in operation for about the past 14 to 15 years yeah. and has been kind of been operating under the covers. Nobody's really kind of put the pieces together mm -hmm. until now. Kaspersky has put a report together that is kind of connecting all the dots over the, you know, So some of the pieces and years. parts were known over, over many years, but it hadn't really made the connections between those. Right. Yeah. yeah, I think that's the case. So when they started to kind of piece these, the picture together here, they noticed that from a targeting standpoint, interesting targets, mm -hmm. uh, Iran, Russian Federation, Pakistan, Afghanistan, India, China, uh, Syria, and I can't read the last one there. <laughs> but um, all of these, you know, nations that 
certain countries might be interested in. There's only yeah. a couple that I can think of, one we're sitting in. In any event, lower infection rates than some of these other countries. Mm -hmm. They use virtual file systems. The other interesting thing is there's some, some parallels and some techniques that were leveraged in some other malware families, such as Stuxnet right. and the Flame, Flame. malware, right. which we're pretty sure is probably a U.S. initiative, uh, some of those, or right. U.S., Israel, perhaps, kind mm -hmm. of partnered type of um, malware. So they notice that there's some correlation there. So the virtual file systems also used in the Reagan malware, which they also believe might have been used in some targeted attacks as well. Mm -hmm. They do some other tricks like stashing uh, malicious files in the registry uh, in multiple locations. So that makes it more difficult for antivirus to get rid of it. Mm -hmm. They also notice that it will redirect iPhone users to unique exploit web pages. They also notice a large proportion of OSX devices uh, reporting in uh, as well, which is interesting because uh, we don't see that as much. Not as often, although we, we, we need to keep in mind that a lot of the Mac users will install a Windows virtual machine in there. So it, True, yeah. although the way they kind of determine this is by looking at the user agents okay. uh, pass, so they mm -hmm. can tell that it's a, an OSX using Safari and whatnot. Mm -hmm. okay. um, so it wouldn't necessarily be something like Parallels or a virtual right. host right. within uh, a Macintosh. Large number of internet domains over the years. They do some other interesting things like uh, using USB stick-based reconnaissance to mm -hmm. uh, kind of bridge between air gap networks. So we know that there are certain organizations that they air gap their networks. They don't connect mm -hmm. them to the internet. And sometimes the only way to get the data between the two is with a USB thumb drive. Right. So they had some tricks to kind of move the data back and forth with a thumb drive uh, because it's these machines that actually had the interesting data uh, were not directly connected to the internet. Mm -hmm. So that's another, and that's also something Stuxnet, Stuxnet and Flame uh, uh, did as well. They did some other interesting tricks to bypass code signing restrictions by leveraging, I forget, uh, some vendors, can't remember who it was now, but they were able to leverage an exploit vector in like uh, one of the CD, uh, CD drivers in order okay. to, to bypass that and, right. uh, uh, and whatnot. Uh, they're also, the, one of the most interesting things is that they're able to rewrite the hard drive firmware on a large number of hard drive manufacturers. And in doing so, they could create a little secret storage vault on that hard drive mm -hmm. that even if you did like a disk wipe uh, and re-image the reformat the drive, it would still persist there right. and it could be recovered potentially right. um, if they needed to. So that's interesting that they went to such, because not a lot of people have the ability to rewrite hard drive firmware. In fact, mm -hmm. uh, I can't really think of anybody uh, that we've actually run across. So we haven't, haven't seen any malware. Uh, we haven't seen see that, that sort of thing. I mean, we've certainly seen evidence of BIOS um, yes. type malware, but this is a case where, you know, actually going into a peripheral and targeting the peripheral. I mean, it, it's certainly a, a, a palatable leap, <laughs> right. but it's not necessarily you know, it's not something that's in the mainstream by any stretch of the right, imagination. Right. Right. And then lastly, this is not entirely unseen in other places that we've seen, but they're very targeted in um, who they would uh, compromise. So there are some cases where there are some message boards mm -hmm. with actors uh, so that there are certain actors that they were interested in, maybe because they were discussing extremist topics or whatnot. Mm -hmm. 
and they specifically targeted those users and ignored other users that might drive to that website. So when those users logged in, they had updated it so it would only send the drive-by exploit to those specific users that mm. they're actually Serious. interested in and yeah. throw away the other ones. And they also, in the code, they found that it was looking at IP address blocks for certain countries and throwing them away too, saying, I'm not going to infect anybody from these countries. Mm -hmm. Interestingly, it was Turkey, Jordan, and Egypt, which I'm not sure what to make of that either. There was a follow-up today in Ars Technica article that uh, password cracking experts decipher elusive equation group crypto hash. Mm. There was a hash in there that the Kaspersky folks had not been able to crack and so they enlisted some help, and uh, after a few hours, a couple of researchers did manage to crack it, and it came back as the Arabic for unregistered. Mm, right. Curious. <laughs> so, well, I think that the what was going on there is it was a like a message board mm -hmm. for Arabic speakers. So if you happen to go to that website and hit that message board, mm -hmm. but you actually weren't logged in, you were unregistered. Right. So if that appeared as your username, they said ignore you, um, whereas otherwise they would go into a different code branch to okay. see if it is somebody they want to grab. Curious. Well, this this still has a lot of question marks around it yes. in my mind. I yeah. mean, but and I think perhaps one of the things to keep in mind is they're trying. I mean, this is a this is been a thing going on for a number of years mm -hmm. and there probably have been a lot of changes a lot of different nuances taking place over time and we're basically seeing a little bit of a snapshot of what's what's been found it's uh it's really difficult you know there's there's the big picture and then there are the specific sort of well what i will say is if you read the kaspersky article it's pretty long and it goes mm -hmm. into a lot of detail they also have a kind of nice uh, histogram of mm -hmm. uh, yeah. through the years, That's the same, different yeah. families of malware exactly, and how yeah. it evolved. So they tried to put it together pretty well for the past, mm -hmm. whatever, 14, 15 years, mm -hmm. uh, and the different families of malware, how those families work, uh, MD5 sums, other types of signatures to look for. Mm -hmm. uh, so it's it's worth it's definitely worth the read. It's way more than we could cover in the program without spending a lot of time. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, uh, but I wanted to give you kind of the nuggets yep. of what it was about. Very good ones. And you know, I guess one of the things that I always kind of uh, debate about this type of thing is to what extent is the technology or the or the, the techniques that are used perhaps in this campaign, to what extent are they considered volatile from the very beginning? That is, what do you expect, how long do you expect the technology to go, to be useful before it's discovered and then perhaps becomes, um, you know, something gets done to, to obviate that capability and then you have to move on to something else and different. It's, uh, you know, it's kind of a fascinating thought. I haven't got any insight into that one. <laughs> yeah, the, I don't either. Process goes Other than... Uh, one thing that stuck out for this particular article is that if you look at the evolution of the malware, it was um, all the uh, hard drive-based infections, the hard drive firmware stuff, was phased out about, uh, what, two or three years ago? And that actually uh, shifted to a different form of uh, infection afterwards. So that kind of answers the question there in terms of, you know, how long live would this particular infection technology be? Uh, hard drive firmware apparently stopped being useful sometime after 2008 mm -hmm. um, in terms of an infection vector, or it became either too easy to detect or too annoying to maintain. Um, I just found that particular tidbit interesting that they shifted away from hard drive firmware infections at one point in favor of something else. Um, and it wasn't until really last year that there was uh, public source code in the security domain to allow people to build their own custom firmware hacks 
uh, for a particular drive, a firmware uh, hard drive. So it's kind of neat seeing how the information security field is, um, you know, playing catch up on a lot of cases with yeah. what these state yeah. actors are doing. Yeah, you're absolutely right. So, uh, you know, it, and it, again, it's, it kind of gives you a little bit of insight into how, how, how those things sort of evolve over time. It's, you have to really expect that it's going to be discovered and becomes uh, something that you can't really use very effectively at some point. Although, uh, sort of counterpoint, you know, contradicting myself here, <laughs> the, uh, we, we've seen a lot of APT techniques that continue to persist despite the fact that they're relatively well known in the public domain. They, it's, there's, there's still a plethora of targets out there that haven't protected against those basic things. In fact, even taking it a step further, we, how many times have people said, you know, you need to change passwords on devices, yet there are millions of, you know, Internet of Things devices out there with default passwords on them. It's a right. mess. So. The, well, the thing with the APT actors that I seem to see is they like to kind of build their own custom spin of malware. So even if even if it's known, they're going to recompile it yeah. for you mm -hmm. uh, or That's for true. for the yeah, new so target. So the virus signatures get it right. So the AV signatures yeah. probably aren't going to pick it up because they've kind of recompiled it mm -hmm. in a, another version for you. It probably doesn't have a lot of changes in it, but mm -hmm. enough so that AV probably won't pick it up. And then they'll leverage some type of zero day or some emergent exploit that's probably not covered yet by whoever they're targeting. Mm -hmm. And then they don't target a lot of people. Right. So they're only gonna target a small number, usually. Uh, it's mm -hmm. not always the case, but, um, yep. and that's just enough yep. to get them in, implant that piece of malware that AV's not gonna know about, because there's only maybe three cases of it in the world. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, it stays under the radar, to, yeah, just like we were talking about. Financially, stays in, staying under the radar, this is a case where malware-wise in the malware ecosystem that right. stays under the radar. Right. Absolutely. One thing that stuck out for me uh, in this particular case was, uh, well, two real things. Um, just like previous uh, what are assumed to be state actor-sponsored malware kits, um, the real payload doesn't get installed unless it goes through a selector first. So one of the ways they probably keep their real payloads being detected by AV companies is they won't even deliver it on most of the platforms they infect. They only deliver it on the platforms where the target meets some other sort of criteria. Uh, and they keep changing up those middle layers, but they don't have to change that uh, last stage payload very often because it's only being installed in specific systems that probably aren't going to leak it back to an antivirus company. Um, a second piece that jumped out was this is the, if you look at uh, Kim Zetter's book about the kind of history of Stuxnet and Flame, a lot of work went into using the PE file timestamps, the build times basically within the PE files mm -hmm. to determine the history of Stux and, you know, Goss and Flame and so on. Um, with the latest equation group malware samples, all the timestamps were um, obviously falsified, which is interesting to see. So another case where, you know, after um, Stuxnet was basically reconstructed in some ways based on timestamps, um, the actors obviously learned that was a good idea to start randomizing the timestamps going forward, but still somehow managed to, you know, leak their PDB strings by accident. I don't, I'm not really sure why these things aren't getting better scrutiny before they go out. You know, one of the things that I, could, I kind of wonder about, you know, if, if these techniques get into the public domain, that becomes a bigger thing, right? If it, if it becomes a script kitty kind of tool, mm -hmm. <laughs> then you can start modifying, you know, the BIOS on disk drives and to maintain, maintain persistence, things like that. That's where it gets really tricky, in my opinion. So. Well, <laughs> to be frank, I mean, from the Metasploit side, we see this as a to-do list. For yeah. us, it's like, wow, we got a lot of work to do to catch up. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. 
So let's take a little bit of a look at the uh, internet weather for the last week or so here. And uh, first item on the list is uh, scam probes on port 11211 TCP. This is uh, a memcached program. Uh, it's intended to help speed up the dynamics of uh, web, app web applications by you know, reducing the load on the backend databases. And um, it, what we're seeing in basically instigating a lot of this at, at, uh, scanning activity here is a source address, a single source address in China. And it's also doing scanning on a number of other ports, 5800, 5900, 6379, 7001, 8009, 8090, 8888. <laughs> um, and then also 32764. And 32764 kind of is uh, one that kind of sticks out here because that's one that's associated with a back door on a number of, um, of home router devices. This is the one that uh, was uh, on uh, Cisco, Linksys, yeah, Linksys uh, Netgear, uh, and uh, there's a Diamond, I think, was another one okay. that uh, that had this back door that was discovered. Uh, I think Netgear did a patch, and it basically just hid the fact that the back door was right, there to actually fix the patch. So, and so, uh, you know, uh, so you, you you get a little bit of an idea what the objective behind this is. Uh, it, it, apparently. The fact that they continue to persist on this scanning activity suggests that they're perhaps finding uh, this port exposed on some of these uh, memcached. Do we know what 6379 services. is? Off the top of my head, I don't re recall, but it's uh, it's along the lines of the same kinds of things. I think it's a, basically a, a backdoor okay. uh, application, but I'd have to double check on that one. Next item here is top 10 most probed ports. And at the top of the list, we have port 22 TCP. That's moved up just a little bit. So we're gonna take a little closer look at it. Nothing really exciting on that in any case. Port 135 TCP, a lot of scanning activity still on that one, still associated with a, a specific source of activity that continues to persist. Port 9064, that's a proxy port that's also showing activity here. It's been on the list for some time now. And we're also seeing some activity on port 1900 UDP. Uh, and that's again associated with these uh, reflective denial service attacks. We're going to take a little closer look at that over the last 180 days or so just to see what the trends are going on with the reflexive activity. Followed by port 23 TCP, that's Telnet, uh, port 53 UDP DNS. And uh, that DNS activity is oftentimes associated with either identifying open uh, DNS resolvers to be able to facilitate reflective attacks, or it may in fact be, uh, there are circumstances where it can be associated with the reflection attacks directly. Followed by port 8080 TCP, proxy ports, port 80 TCP web, port 3389 remote desktop protocol, finally by port 445 TCP. Next item here is uh, scan probes on port 22 TCP. As I said, we take a little closer look at this, looking at the last 90 days of activity here. And there was a period of time earlier, about two weeks ago in February, where we saw basically a, a spike or an increase in activity. But uh, it's notable that there is an awful lot of scanning activity on port 22 uh, TCP on the order of hundreds of probes, millions of probes per hour that are taking place here. Most of the probes are actually from, uh, in, now in terms of the surge activity that we saw, most of the probes were associated with a U.S. university that's doing research activities. And then uh, a good sort of a counter share of that uh, is actually from uh, sources in China. Next item is the uh, top 10 most sources doing the probing, as we were just referring to. Top of the list is port 23 TCP. Uh, we had taken a look at that last week, and in fact, it was actually somewhat down compared to what we had seen just a month or so ago. Uh, there had been up on the order of uh, exceeding 150,000 sources doing that probing, but it, uh, it has stabilized, gone down a little bit. 
still on the top of the list, however. The only other uh, notable ones that I want to point out is port 445 TCP. We're going to take a little closer look at that. And then we do still have this 1900 UDP showing up here, which is associated with uh, that reflection attack activity. So taking a look at port 445 over the last year here, it's a, it's a good news story. You know, this is still sort of uh, some remnants of the Conficker worm. I don't even remember how many years ago that was yeah, now. I don't even know it's, it's, uh, I think it was maybe it's at least three or four years ago. In any case, uh, we're, we're seeing a positive trend here. It's uh, over the last year or so down roughly, uh, I'm going to say about 30% from uh, what it had been. And that's uh, certainly a good trend in the right direction. But still a long way to go to get rid of those. I hadn't had the opportunity to actually go in, but I suspect a lot of these are non-US uh, sources that are doing these, uh, you know, doing this probing activity that is, it's, it's suggestive of still, you know, latent infections. Uh, most of those aren't uh, actually in the U.S. At, at this point. Then the last thing I wanted to share with you here today is uh, the, basically a trend activity associated with uh, distributed reflective denial surface attack activity. And uh, there are a number of ports that are showing on here basically in aggregate. What I was basically trying to show is in terms of uh, the bit rate, how much uh, activity is taking place. Trend-wise, not a significant trend. This is over the last 180 days, so almost a half a year that we're showing. And uh, you don't really see a significant increase, not a significant decrease either. In fact, you might even argue that there's a, over the last uh, couple of months here, there's been an increase or, uh, in the density of activity. That's actually not terribly unusual considering that we just sort of came out of the holidays. Mm -hmm. It's not unusual to see more of that activity, and particularly considering a lot of this denial of service activity is instigated or are motivated by you know, competitive gaming activities. So uh, when folks were out of school, high school or college, college or whatever, yeah. there's a good possibility that they increase their level of activity here. And, um, you know, that unfortunately, there are stressor services where you can go and buy this, uh, this sort of capability. Don't do it. It's not legal. But in any case, the, um, a couple of trends worth noting here. One is that at the top of the list in terms of the largest attacks still uh, is from uh, network time protocol, port 123. And we did have a new one that reported on a couple of weeks ago. That was uh, port 1434. That's Microsoft SQL database that has been uh, starting to contribute to this. But it is way, way down in the noise, relatively speaking. And a good portion of the activity in the in-between space, we still have uh, a reasonable amount of activity associated with port 1900. That's uh, simple service discovery protocol, as well as um, uh, port 53 and uh, port 19. That's character generator. So. Uh, that pretty much covers it. That's our show for today. So uh, I would like to thank you for joining us. And if you'd like to get in touch with us, you can email us at threattrack at list.att.com. And you can find ThreatTrack on the ATT Tech Channel. It's att.com slash threattrack, as well as on YouTube and on iTunes. Uh, and you can follow us on Twitter. Our handle is at ATT Security. I'd like to thank you, HD, for joining us today. Thank you, Jim. Thanks, John. It was certainly a pleasure having you. My name is Brian Rixroad. We'll be back next week with a new episode. And until then, keep your network safe. The views expressed on AT&T ThreatTrack are those of the participants and do not necessarily represent the views of AT&T or any other person or entity.